the account of Jesus' crucifixion. And the soldiers took him away into the palace, that is, the praetorium. And they called together the whole Roman cohort, and they dressed him up in purple. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting at him and kneeling and bowing before him, mocking him. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple off him and put his own garments on him. And they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, who is the father of Alexander and Rufus. They pressed him into service to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but... He would not take it. And they crucified him. And divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read in three languages, The king of the Jews. And they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right, one on his left. And thus the scripture was fulfilled, which says, he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were casting at him the same insult. And when the sixth hour had come, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? was just translated, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry, breathed his last, 
and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, truly, this man was the Son of God. Stand with me as we sing, Jesus paid it all. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as died my soul to save my lips shall still repeat Jesus paid it all all to him I owe sin had left a crimson stain he washed it white as Amen. You may be seated. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. He wrote, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, 
It is the power of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message of the cross. We thank you that for those of us who follow you, it is indeed the power of God. Help us to ponder this truth tonight. Help us to ponder the message of the cross as we remember the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Tonight, my assumption is that I'm speaking mostly to those who would consider the cross to be the power of God. I suppose it's also possible that there are some here tonight who are among those for whom the message of cross is still foolishness. After all, let's think about this. A cross, a form, a method, an instrument of execution, that's what saves us. Some of us have been followers of Christ for so long, we may just tend to forget how foolish this sounds to the unbeliever. Even as Christians, we may forget that this cross that we ponder tonight is the power of God in our lives for our salvation, as well as for changing us more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. The sad thing is that there are segments of the church at large that are trying to remove this foolishness and this power of the cross by ignoring or somehow diminishing the central place the cross has in our faith. But the cross is central to our faith. If it isn't, then we've really lost something very critical. The Apostle Paul thought it so central to our faith that he wrote this to the Corinthians just a few verses after the passage we just read at the outset. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul wrote, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul was saying that in all his teaching and in all his preaching, the central point of importance was the cross. Paul was telling the Corinthians, you might forget the other things that I teach you, but don't ever forget the cross. Because it was on the cross, it was through the cross, and it was by the cross that our Savior performed his work of redemption and gathered his people for eternity. I once read an article on a very popular TV preacher and author. This man sells tickets to his national tour. He fills 15 to 20,000 seat arenas with his positive message. And this quote that I read, he describes his own church, considered the largest church in America today. They have about 30,000 members. He says, it's not a churchy feel. We don't have crosses up there. We believe in all that. But I like to take the barriers down that have kept people from coming. A lot of people who come now are people that haven't been to church in 20 to 30 years. Now, did you catch that? Did you catch how he characterized the cross? All that. That's what he said about the cross. We reduce the message of the cross to the phrase, all that. Singer and author Michael Card recognized this trend here in America and even in the church, he said that particularly in American Christianity, the cross has become somewhat objectionable. Well-known pastors avoid referring to it in their sermons and on their TV programs because it's too negative. He writes, other people are put off by the violence the cross portrays. They wonder, shouldn't we focus instead on the gentler side of the gospel? Now, I have no problem at all with trying to remove barriers to the faith. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 
chapter 9, verse 22, to the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. And then in Acts 15, talking to his fellow believers about Jewish rules and regulations and debating about what should be required of the Gentiles, James said this, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So there are legitimate strategies, plans to participate with the Holy Spirit and bringing people to Christ and removing potential barriers that need not keep people away. In some churches, this might mean something about the church culture. Maybe men don't wear ties and suits and women don't have to wear dresses. In other words, making people feel comfortable however they're dressed. In other churches, it might mean having contemporary music. And in other churches, it might mean something altogether different than that. And in many cases, done with the right intent and done with the right focus, without compromising on truly biblical standards, there's certainly nothing wrong with these strategies. But there are things that we might consider to be barriers that cannot be removed from churches, even for the sake of reaching people for Christ maybe especially for reaching people with the whole gospel. Now, these real barriers, and I don't want to imply for even a moment that they aren't in some way barriers, but they're there for a vital purpose. Without this particular barrier of the cross, we cannot fully understand the good news. Why is the gospel good news? At least one reason is because Jesus endured the cross instead of us, the ones who deserved it. There's an old adage which goes, what you win them with is what you win them to. I think if you win them with a gospel, and in this context I use that word loosely, but if you win them with a gospel which requires you to remove the offense, the barrier, the foolishness of the cross because you think it's a hindrance to them coming, I wonder if you're really winning them to the Jesus which the Bible reveals. The Jesus we're worshiping here tonight. The Jesus who, for the joy set before him, Scripture tells us, endured the cross. If Jesus endured the cross, knowing that joy and glory awaited him, yet knowing that the cross and only the cross was the painful, terrible path he must walk to that glory, then why should we think the cross is an insurmountable barrier to bringing people to Christ? Remember what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Let me read this passage we read at the opening again. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Would we say to our children that, for example, you know, we'll take away this little barrier, this difficult barrier of finishing high school because we know it's painful, we know it's hard, and we know it's offensive, so we'll take it away, and you'll still be able to get a good job when you grow up. We also don't say to our kids, well, you know, those immunization shots, they hurt, so we'll take away that barrier to preventing disease. I'd submit to you tonight that as we mark this occasion of Jesus' death on the cross, that we cannot remove the barrier of the cross. The most troubling thing about this preacher that I mentioned a moment ago, the one I quoted who doesn't have crosses up in his church, 
is not so much that there are no crosses to be seen in his church, but more so there's no cross in his preaching. Let's be honest. Let's be real here for a moment. Let's recognize the truth of history. The cross is offensive. Crucifixion was an awful thing. Back in the day when it was used as a form of execution, it wasn't even talked about in polite company. But for us, it's also the way to salvation. The whole message of the cross is offensive to our natural minds. The whole idea that it takes the death of God incarnate to save our souls is a barrier to many, many people. But if we water this down, or if we remove this barrier to make it easier for people to step over, to make it easier for them to ignore, or to not fully consider the cost, we're inevitably watering down the gospel message, which includes the fact that Jesus must and did die on the cross, and the accompanying truth that it's our sin that made this necessary. The Word called this barrier a stumbling stone or a rock of offense. In some passage, it's the same word from which we get the English word scandal. The cross is a scandal. Jesus himself said in Matthew eleven six, And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. In Romans 9.33, we read, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Even Isaiah saw prophetically, quoted here in the verse from Romans, hundreds of years before Jesus took up his cross, that Jesus, and by inference, the cross of Christ, the means God chose to bring salvation to men, would be a barrier it would be a stumbling stone. It would be offensive. That stumbling stone, that scandal, that barrier is Jesus and Jesus on the cross. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So for us to take away that barrier of the cross, even though it might be well-intentioned, is to minimize the cross. It's to de-emphasize its power, to de-emphasize its necessity, to reduce how essential it is in God's plan of salvation and in our walk of faith. But I'd say this evening that the cross cannot be reduced. It can't be diminished. As much as our culture, as much as we might try, as much as we might attempt to remove it as a barrier, as much as the world might like to make it into only a symbol or even a fashion statement and rob it of its eternal meaning, the cross is undiminished. It's undiminished in time. It's undiminished in eternity. Unless we embrace and even welcome that barrier, just as Jesus embraced his destiny on the cross, I don't believe we can come into the kingdom of God. I don't believe we can live lives of sacrificial service to the king unless we consider the offense of the cross, unless we think about it, ponder it, even as we're doing here together tonight, unless we realize, as the song that we sometimes sing says, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin 
upon that cross. We need to think about these things. If we don't, we lose the power of the cross to save us and to sanctify us, and instead we treat it as foolishness. If we don't consider the cost, then it says to me that we must think we don't need that awful price to be paid. Well, maybe some of those other people do, but we don't need that awful price to be paid. If we don't think the price needs to be paid, how can we ever accept Jesus' gift of eternal life to us? When you buy something, you may not think you need to pay as much as that thing costs. But if you don't pay that price, you don't get that thing, do you? The cross is what it took to save us. It was the cost for our salvation. And Jesus paid it in full for us. Jesus paid it all to remove the cross for the sake of removing barriers to the gospel is not preaching the whole gospel. Some would make the cross into a symbol of God's love for us. And of course, in some ways, it really is that. Yet ultimately, the cross is not first and foremost a symbol. It's so, so much more than a symbol. It's a means. It's a bridge to cross from eternal death to eternal life. It's the instrument of our salvation. Not only should we not remove the cross from our churches, but I think we should embrace all it means, all it means in our lives, all it means in history, and all it means in eternity. The cross is the reason we're here tonight, not just because we're Christians saved by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, but because it's important. And not just this one day a year, but always, maybe especially on this day, which we've chosen to mark Jesus' death on the cross, it's important to remember. But it's not just important to remember. It's important to ponder, to consider, to think about Jesus' suffering for us, his horrible, painful death to purchase our salvation with his blood. The writer of Hebrews wrote this in chapter 12, beginning with verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Then it goes on to say, consider him, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Here we have the admonition, first of all, to fix our eyes on Jesus who endured the cross. Then we're admonished to consider him, to think about. That means think about, to ponder, to meditate on Jesus who endured. So we see in the span of just a couple verses here that we're to focus on him, to consider, to think about, to ponder Jesus. Now, many of you know I was raised Catholic. I was an altar boy. I went to St. Mary's grade school. I went to Notre Dame High School. And there was a time before I was a teenager when I even seriously considered becoming a priest. Now, that was before I discovered girls. And, of course, priests can't marry. So that idea went away fast. But as a Catholic schoolboy... You know what? We always had Good Friday off of school. It was always a day off. There was never a Good Friday when I didn't attend church with my family. Now, one of the things 
I still appreciate about my Catholic upbringing to this day is the sobriety with which we treated Good Friday. I remember following what are called the Stations of the Cross. You know what the Stations of the Cross are? Some of you may have heard of those or seen that. It was a step-by-step recounting of Jesus' path to his crucifixion and to the grave. Most Catholic churches had some sort of art, wood carvings or paintings or stained glass depicting these stations, individual stations of the cross. In the stations of the cross, there were 14 specific events in the passion of Jesus on his way to the cross and then into the tomb. For example, the first station is Jesus is condemned to die. And the second station is Jesus carries his cross. And the third station is Jesus falls the first time. All the way to the last station where Jesus is laid in the tomb. There's a liturgy that goes with it in which we contemplate these scenes. Here's a sampling. The second station is Jesus carries his cross. Part of the liturgy reads like this. I contemplate the wood of that cross. I imagine how heavy it is. I reflect upon all it means that Jesus is carrying it. I look into his eyes. It's all there. This is for me. So I place myself with him in this journey in its anguish, in his freedom and surrender, in the love that must fill his heart. With sorrow and gratitude, I continue the journey. Moved by the power of his love, I am drawn to him and express my love in the words that come to me. I also remember many Good Fridays as a boy when my parents encouraged, even required, my brother, my sister, and me to be quiet and to ponder the suffering and death of Jesus, especially during the hours of noon to 3 p.m. when Scripture tells us that as Jesus hung on the cross, there was darkness over the whole land during those three hours. For years, long before I even accepted Christ for myself, I was very moved. I've been very moved by the thoughts of Jesus' suffering, by thoughts of the cross. There came a day when I was 16 years old and I understood all this in a personal way and trusted in the blood of Christ for my salvation. But I have to tell you, I really appreciate my upbringing, that my family insisted on the holiness of this day, that it wasn't just reduced to just another day off. I really believe that this laid the groundwork for my embracing the cross of Christ as the instrument of my salvation. Did you know that for almost 400 years, the early Christian church never depicted Jesus on a cross. It's kind of hard for us to imagine as we have all seen all kinds of art of Jesus on a cross. But some of the research that I did says that the first known depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus to come from the Christian community was not carved until A.D. 420. That was 387 years after the crucifixion. From early Christian art, From the catacombs, for example, we've seen inscriptions, menorahs, anchors, and the then secret but now familiar symbol that we see on bumper stickers, the ichthys, the fish. We see all these things in this part of history, many events in Jesus' life depicted, but never was Jesus depicted on a cross. Now, you may wonder why that is. Michael Card wrote this, we can only speculate what the reason must be. We might be tempted to think 
that the early Christians were embarrassed by the cross. But in light of the fact that so many of them were being martyred for Christ, this doesn't seem likely. What makes the most sense to me is that for many years, the impact of the cross was still too graphic and gruesome and still too personal. For many of them, crucifixion was less a fact of history than a contemporary horror. Many carried fresh memories of friends and family, some of whom had been used as human torches hanging from crosses. For a set of very different reasons, he writes, the cross seems to have disappeared from the Christian art and music of our own time. Worse, it has disappeared from many hearts and minds as well. Fewer and fewer of the churches I visit have crosses hanging behind or in front of the pulpit. Fewer songs sing of it. Fewer sermons celebrate it. Why didn't they, why didn't the early Christians utilize the symbol of the cross? My guess is that they shied away from representing the cross because it meant too much, not because it means too little as it does today. He writes, the cross is not a symbol. It is the center of the universe, the nexus of history, the most meaningful event that ever took place. Though the world, both pagan and Christian, seems bent on reducing the meaning of the cross, it is irreducible. So for 400 years, you never saw a cross in a church. If we keep heading that way, the way we're heading now, you may not see crosses in many churches in our time either, but it will be for a different reason. And while for the early Christians it might have been too graphic or too personal, maybe hitting a little bit too close to home, I think for this era of Christians, we need the cross. We need to see it. We need to think about it. We need to ponder it. That's why I still have not just a cross, but I have this crucifix. I've had this since I was a teenager in high school at Notre Dame High School. And I have this in my office at home. Because for many of us, if not for most of us, the cross is not too personal. It's not personal enough. It's not close to home at all. And if it is, it's only on Good Friday or during Holy Week. So we're in a completely different place than the early Christians. While they spoke of about it and they wrote about it, they didn't picture it like we do because it was all very real to them. It's not just as real to us. They didn't need to see the cross like I think we do. In Luke 9.23, Jesus said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. How can we understand what this means to us if we never think about what it meant to him? Life Application Commentary says, The cross was an instrument of violent and painful execution. To take the cross was to carry the horizontal beam of the cross out to the site of execution, usually past a jeering mob. In rhetorically strong terms, Jesus describes what all true disciples must be ready for. If they follow him, they must be ready to face literal scorn on the road to eventual martyrdom, for they must follow to the cross. We must refocus. We must refocus regularly on the cross. From the moment of faith, believers must count their lives forfeit for the kingdom. 
When we commit to becoming followers of Christ, we commit to becoming crucified followers of Jesus. The reason for this is not because Jesus has to die again, but that we must. When he bids us take up our cross, he means come and die. That's because the cross was a place of horrible execution. It would have been unthinkable in Jesus' day to wear a cross as a piece of jewelry. It would have been like wearing a miniature electric chair or lynching rope. His words must have had a terrifying effect. Think about that. You're in that time, you're in that place where you have probably seen crucifixions and Jesus says, take up your cross. And he says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. As much as the world has tried to reduce the cross to a symbol, to a simple piece of jewelry, it remains undiminished. But we can reduce its importance again if we do not choose to remember the suffering and death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Today, the words, take up your cross, don't seem nearly as sobering as they must have to the early followers of Jesus, many of whom might have actually seen someone hang on a cross. But if we think of these things, if we ponder these things, if we consider Jesus, if we fix our eyes on him, those are sobering words, aren't they? They mean that when I follow Jesus, the old self-determining, self-absorbed me must be crucified. My old self must be put to death. I must consider myself dead to sin and alive to God. This is the path of life. Just as Jesus took the road to Golgotha, making it the path of life to us. If we are to maintain a truly biblical understanding of our faith in this era when everything around us seeks to reduce this understanding, we must refocus regularly our attention on the cross of Jesus Christ. It must become more than a yearly pondering. It's good to do what we're doing here tonight. But we must do this more than once a year. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said of grace and the cross, how could something become cheap, cheap, which costs God everything? We must live the cross in our daily lives. The cross of Jesus is now and forever will be the center of our faith. It's the center and the power of his unlimited grace for us. Let these words from the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6 be part of our closing prayer tonight. Galatians 6.14 reads, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful.